This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. What's poppin' CROs? My name is Christian Louvier. I am with CRO Gumbo and joining me today is Kara Smith-Brown, CEO of Smith-Brown Marketing. Kara, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Kara, give me, give me in the audience a quick 411 on uh, your, what you do now and a little bit of your background. Sure. So I've got it down to about two minutes. Uh, <laughs> I was very fortunate. <laughs> I was very fortunate in 2006 to be the 12th employee at Echo Global Logistics. Uh, we grew 3,000% in three years, and my name is on that ITO press release. So I got to watch a startup go from uh, zero to IPO in three years. It's a wild ride. While I was there, I also got to watch the start of Groupon, which was really neat. So the 600 West Chicago, Eric Lepofsky, Brad Keywell ecosystem was an incredible time for me. I ended up moving to Nashville to do another IPO. Uh, instead of going public, that company ended up um, going through some pretty serious financial hardship. Moved mm-hmm. back to Chicago, popped up some kids, and ended <laughs> up um, <laughs> consulting for a bunch of my friends because coming from 600 West Chicago, there are a bunch of folks that have started businesses like Buddha, Sprout Social, Social, things like that. And um, ended up moving to Atlanta in 2016, kicking up the business uh, here in the Southeast, which has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we broke, uh, so less than 2% of female founders will break a million dollars in revenue. And we did that in less than two years with an all-female team, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. We now have men that work for us, but at the time we were all women. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, we are hyper specific B2B lead generators. So we consider ourselves lead gen engineers and uh, we focus mostly on the heavy industrial B2B supply chain or supply chain technology related space. Um, it's been really good to us. The bar is relatively low in terms of what people are, uh, are expecting from the marketing teams internally. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, um, B2B companies don't need a six-figure CRO or CMO. They just need one or a couple of days of someone like my time. So uh, it's really good for us and um, have a great time. Yeah, great. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I had you on the, the podcast is, you know, there's a lot of crossover between uh, small business CEOs and the formal CRO title that exists maybe in a midsize or larger company. So I wanted to get your take on a, a few points there. Um, but one thing that I've heard you say multiple times because I've, I've been able to hear you speak is you you quote this 2% um, of female founders very often, um, in, uh, which which is great. But I'm, I'm curious, what what about it stuck with you to where it became like the focal point of like your, I mean, it drives just about everything you do business-wise, it seems. Yeah, it definitely drove us to the million dollar mark. Um, And it actually drives me personally to help other women uh, achieve the million dollar mark. I think a couple of things, um, you're familiar with EO, the entrepreneur organization, they Mm -hmm. focus on the million dollar mark too, sort of being the first um, to the first cliff, if you will, like the, the sort of the, the bedrock of being a quote unquote real business, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so EO says that less than 4% of all founders will break a million dollars in revenue. And American Express says that it's actually 1.7% of female founders. And I've always been goal oriented. When I was in college, 
someone told me that I wasn't athletic enough to do an Ironman. <laughs> and so I said, cool, hold my beer. And I no, did. Wait, who, was this like, <laughs> was this like somebody you were dating a friend? Uh, somebody you randomly met? What was totally it? To be totally honest, it was some guy from high school that I had a crush on in high school. And I ended up hanging out with him for whatever reason after college. And he had gotten into triathlon. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I've been taking spin class. <laughs> I should try that. And he's like, okay, sweetheart. Like, it's really a lot different than like spin class. Uh-huh. And you're not the kind of person that does an Ironman. And Got I was it. like, okay, watch me. Right. So I sort of have that attitude in general in life. Like, okay, watch me. Uh, so I did an Ironman. <laughs> um, and when I heard the stat, when I heard this, this 1.7 or 2% stat of women entrepreneurs, it, it sort of infuriated me. And I had really not been a feminist up until becoming an entrepreneur. It wasn't really something that I spent a lot of time thinking about was women in business. I spent a lot of time around really, really smart men and had a lot of, still have a lot of respect for the guys that I sort of came up with in my early days of my career. Um, but after having two daughters myself and, and really fighting, if you will, the good fight to be the woman in the room that is making the deals and um, running a business, it really became something that was really important to me. And so in addition to talking about it a lot, sort of as an entrepreneur myself, I'm also super involved specifically in the Southeast on helping other women become entrepreneurs and mostly helping other women think of themselves as salespeople and understanding that being an entrepreneur means you will have to sell, uh, which I think is a lot. It's, it's a hard for some women to, um, to, to sort of wrap their arms around. And mm-hmm. so I started a group called Close Her with a dear friend of mine, Jordan uh, Eric Eddy. And uh, we are an organization that helps women in sales. And we help them connect and find each other, um, learn from each other, et cetera. I'm also on the board of Launchpad 2X, which is Bernie Dixon's um, um, entrepreneur boot camp. So every October, she has a three-day boot camp for women entrepreneurs. And uh, 2%, less than 2% of female founders break a million dollars in revenue. For Launchpad, that number is 25%. So she's doing something right, and I mm-hmm. am thrilled to be a part of it. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an when interesting you say, question. Uh, close her um can, can you spell it because uh, I, I thought it was a clever name and um what is the yeah. focus of the organization there yeah so close her is spelled just like it sounds c-l-o-s-e-h-e-r <laughs> instead of closer close her which is cute uh and we actually got the domain i couldn't believe it that it was available closer.com <laughs> and so we have had events with quarterly events um and we've had events in atlanta new york and austin so far with plans to go to dallas uh, Denver and Chicago in 2020. And we really just bring some of the best women that we can find, best sales leaders that we can find, uh, chief revenue officers, VPs of sales, et cetera, together um, with women that are younger. So FDRs, BDRs coming up through the ranks. Because what Jordan found um, at Sales Loft was she looked around at her leadership in the organization and sales ops, an incredible sales organization and they have an incredible culture, just a really great place to work. Um, but she didn't see any women in sales leadership. And so she went looking for those women in the community and I said, Hey, let's do this together. I'm totally in. 
So um, it's been growing like wildfire. We have over 350 women on this email list. Wow. Um, all of whom, yeah, it's a big list. In about a year and a half, we've been doing this. Um, and all of these women are just interested in meeting and connecting with other women in sales. Uh, Kara, what do you think is changing? Uh, let's see, I, I got out of college in like 2003. My first sales job was sometime in 2004. And then I, you know, was in media and then I went into enterprise SaaS sales. Um, and I started doing my own thing around 2014. And I would say around that, I would say probably 2012, 2013, I, I was feeling like the B2B sales experience was changing to where that power shift was happening to where almost all the power is on the buyer side now. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think um, that helps sales positions with, with women or um, democratizes the position, I guess is a better way to put it? I do think that the democratization of technologies has allowed more people uh, from different backgrounds access to great sales technology tools, um, uh, coaching, et cetera, that mm-hmm. they really didn't have before. I mean, if you think about in 2006, when I was at Echo, we had to build our own CRM because Salesforce didn't exist the way that it yeah. does today. Yeah, right? it was definitely not so a platform Yeah, and it was only 10 years ago. I mean, it really wasn't, or 15 years ago, I guess, but it, it really wasn't that long ago right. that we were all trying to sort of hack together um, <laughs> these tools, right? Or figure, you know, build an access. I mean, I remember back in the day, goodness gracious, uh, building an access database, right? Sure. For, for, for to put things that were in Excel into an actual database. And so <laughs> I think the democracy. Which are, like, you probably transfer, you prob- is, is a lot of your business like even getting like customers like off, like just spreadsheets into a CRM? A hundred percent. Oh, okay. <laughs> so and, it's like, still out there. It, so we, Yes, it's still out there. We hired my dad. God bless my dad. He's an awesome dude. He's a 65-year-old Midwestern CPG sales guy, right? Got it. And he just, he just retired, and he said to me, um, you know, Kara, the one thing I'm really going to miss is calling strangers. And I said, oh, really? Dad, I wow. have so many strangers for you to call. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he is our secret weapon. He's, he's been calling all these people for us. It's great. Um, and he's so happy to do it. He's not a 22 year old that we have to like tie to a chair. Right. And, uh, he's happy as a clam, but what he is having trouble with is the technology, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't understand. You want me to type all this stuff, right? I have to type all these things. And so I think, um, it's, it's been a really sort of wild ride. Those of us that are, I consider myself a marketer first and sort of a chief revenue officer second, Mm -hmm. because, we have been using these marketing tools that have become sales tools sort of over time. And I think Aaron Ross uh, with Predictable Revenue in 2007 and just um, outreach sort of the early, did like an early beta test of outreach um, for a client I was working on in 2013. And I remember the, um, I I remember how overwhelmed I was by the power of that tech. Mm -hmm. Of of, of outreach, you mean? Yeah, just of, yeah. The, of the, the marketing automation technology that was mm-hmm. coming along. We'd all had constant contact for a long time. I mean, we bought Exact Target really early on in Chicago when I was there. But the idea that email and reaching people's inboxes from a business perspective was going to be more than a one-to-one relationship, that you were going to be able to do this in mass um, and personalize things. And just the way that the, that the technology has allowed individuals to 
um, to really change the way they go to market has, I think you're right, put more power in the buyer's hands. But the amount of data that I know about the person I'm talking to, uh, if you if you aren't in the space and you don't know, it's pretty creepy. I mean, realistically, yeah. um, you know, I, Crystal was just installed in LinkedIn, right, or HubSpot, one of the two. And, and for, I the, remember, for the audience, can you tell, um, give give my hand on what Crystal is? Yeah, sure. So Crystal, I'm gonna butcher what it actually is but well you don't have crystal, to sell it just <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not a crystal rep by the way yeah. so crystal essentially uh takes all of your your psychographic data and it tells the world essentially anyone that has a crystal login who you are from a disc profile perspective so i remember going through crystal with my husband and laughing because he's a nuclear engineer and uh his crystal profile was like uh, Eric does not want you to use a lot of words. Don't bother him. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's you. That's, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, but to you. be fair, that's, that's kind of every man in a relationship. So. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, not just my husband, but like in business too. And that's, he's an engineer. He's like, give me the facts. I don't want any, you know, I, you know, and for me, it was like, don't send Kara an email longer than like six words. Cause she won't read it, which is also true. So and so, um, podcast, I think I used 13 words. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, it's amazing. So now you can use Crystal to identify, okay, so from an ABM perspective, right here are my top 15 accounts I want to go after. Here are the five people that work there. This is going to be my gatekeeper. This is going to be my champion. I can put in front of the champion exactly what he or she wants to read and email because I know enough about their psychographic profile to understand if they need to be treated with kid gloves or if they're going to be someone who just wants to get to the point. And I think the democratization of those tools is what's coming next. Um, and, and really, I, I say this a lot. I say that as B2B marketers, we are not, we don't build code, right? I'm not a coder by any stretch. I don't build software, but I am a technologist in that I'm a super user. So the average business to business MarTech stack is 17 pieces of technology deep. 17. Yeah, that's, and that's, that means mm -hmm. that's great. Sorry, so, yeah. But, so what that means is that marketers B2B marketers like myself, and I think there is a big difference between B2B and B2C and mm -hmm. it's getting even bigger. That yeah. chasm is getting, is getting even bigger because of access to tools like this. And uh, sure, let, my ability let, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry yeah. because I want to make yeah. sure we we get this. Um, there's two things I want to hit on. So you were talking about the you mentioned earlier. You said you consider yourself a, a marketer first, sales second, and um, mm -hmm. I, I know that line is very gray. But one of the reasons I think that the CRO position is coming in to rise so quickly is because more and more sales, marketing, customer service are having to they're being forced by the customer to break down those silos just to stay alive. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think that's part of it. And then the second thing that you just said that I wanted to touch on, you said you think B2B and B2C are, are different. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that gap is, is widening. And, and I think a lot of people are starting to think that they're coming together. So I'm curious on your take on, on that as well. So the silos internally and why B2B and B2C are so different. Yeah. So I'm going to start with the second one because I think it, it sort of leads to the first. So okay. Uh, in my world, in my opinion, the B2B 
environment is completely different from B2C. And I'll give you a very specific example. So uh, we're in Atlanta in the, in the land of Coke, and Coca-Cola decides they're going to do the, um, the, the Diet Coke different flavors, right? So Diet Coke does a year of research. They, um, you know, put a bunch of flavors together. They do studies. They have all sorts of work that they do before they even put it out there. Then they put it out to market. Then they have to have people buy it. And then lastly, they have to just see if it's a success or not. And that entire process, A, is super expensive. Mm-hmm. And B, could take them years to understand if the bet they made on the Diet Coke wine flavor is successful or not. So that's B to C. In B to B, I can take a list of individuals that I find that I identify are the correct ICP for a client. I can send them a series of three emails over four weeks, and I can identify exactly who was mildly interested, really interested, or not interested at all in a matter of dates. Mm-hmm. Dates. Yeah. And so I it, think that's a that's a great parallel. Um, that's yeah. a good example. Yep. It doesn't take me two years. It doesn't take me hundreds of thousands of dollars to know whether or not uh, what I'm doing is successful. It happens literally overnight. And so I think the skill sets that marketers are learning are very different B2B to B2C. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a really different skill set. So So, I've never done a a focus group, right? Me personally. I've never experienced a focus group. I've never held a focus group. It'd be a complete waste of time. time, (laughs) If I turned to one of my freight broker clients and I said, hey, we're going to run a focus group on whether or not your logo should be pink or blue, it'd be like, uh, no, you're not. And you're fired. Right. <laughs> yeah, like so. sometime, sometime around 2015. I mean, I, you know how it is. Like when you're in the near startup world, you're always having random conversations with angels or VCs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that got pitched that somebody had called me to advise on was about basically, uh, doing focus groups for SAS to where they would organize like C-suite leaders and say, Hey, what's your take on, you know, this product we're going to bring to market. I'm like, you guys, this is a waste of time. Like you're never going to get an honest opinion. <laughs> it's like, I don't know anything about B2C focus groups, but I can't see this working in SaaS. Um, well, and it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit because I can do so much more with a computer and, and a list of email addresses mm-hmm. to identify um, early adopters and laggards and folks that will or will not fit than I ever would be able to do in a focus group of 10 people. Because so, so yeah. And, and Carol, let me, let me ask you this question that helps transition to the, the one about the silos breaking down. Um, yeah. From a marketing perspective, why do we have so much trouble pushing innovative marketing ideas in B2B? Because, you know, use Coca-Cola. If I bring them, I don't know, let's, Let's go do like, um, I don't know, real, real time video of, you know, farmers in uh, wherever your farms are that you get, you know, cocoa beans from, uh, like, they'd be like, Oh, my God, that's a great idea. Let's let's go do that. Whereas if I gave some crazy off the wall thing like that to B2B, they got to think about it. And it almost becomes the the slow process of we don't want to risk something. Why, why do you think that exists on the B2B side? Uh, I think it's our it's everything's ROI driven. Got it. Everything. And so if I can't prove that this crazy hair-brained idea is going to deliver more leads or more highly qualified leads or leads further down the funnel, then um, 
than what I'm doing today, then why would I, why would I fix it if it ain't broke? Right. Well, so, there's there's um, gotta be a brand there, right? Um, cause, cause like, I think like you were saying, there's 17 pieces of technology in the average tech stack and there's like mm-hmm. 7,500 pieces of SaaS on, yeah. on that, 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 um, the, uh, whatever the, what's it called? The, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, last year yeah. it was fifty-two, and this year it's seventy-four. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's insane. Like, um, and so I guess I'm I'm curious why more B2B brands, while you can't measure ROI on brand, they would be doing something to like stand out. Do you do you do you have any thoughts on that? So we've done a really interesting uh, project with a company called American Global Logistics, where we're delivering leads for them through a process we call social conversion. So we're taking the PR that we're getting from them, uh, which is we consider sort of the tip of the spear, and then we're turning that PR into actual lead gen for them using mostly LinkedIn. And so wow. I think, yeah, it's really incredible. We're delivering an average of 85 uh, qualified inbound leads a month for those guys. Um, that's, is, that, is that being done, like, get, I guess, get as tactical as you can for the audience? Is it, yeah. is that being done through like LinkedIn, like paid or is it organic? How is it legion? 100% form? organic. Okay. Yeah. So it's really cool. So, um, my business partner in my second, um, my second business, which is called lead coverage, I think it's Will Haraway. And Will runs Backbeat Marketing, and he is very specific. He is a the guy. I mean, he is the guy, the only guy that does PR for supply chain, uh, supply chain uh, companies, right? So if you are a freight broker or an ocean shipping forwarder or an air freight forwarder, and you want to get your name in lights, Will's the guy. So Will and I have known each other for, sorry? He's much down pretty well then. Yeah, he's a total rock star in this very specific space. He's a he's a he's the guy. And so Will and I have been friends for a long time. We worked together for a company called Cargo Chief in 2012 and 13. Did a really good friends until then. He actually happens to be in Atlanta. So we started a second brand together called Lead Coverage, where we do these very specifically for supply chain management companies. And so Will is the guy that will get your news. So let's just say um, you open a new a new air freight office in Nashville mm-hmm. and you want the world to know that you now have an air freight, air freight station in Nashville. Uh, Will's the guy that gets that news into uh, supply chain dive, inbound logistics, supply demand chain executive, et cetera. So we did a piece for American global logistics. that was super successful. We created uh, essentially a, um, a, uh, a lead magnet, if you will. Um, and, and Tim at FLS was really good job of this too. So long story short, we put this lead magnet up and Will got it picked up by the Wall Street Journal, which is incredible. Um, And a couple of the, um, a couple of the the advisory firms that do um, analyst relations work on the supply chain space. So Morningstar, I think was one of them. And so we, we got this piece up and it was a really short piece. It was two or three pages. It was the supply chain industry technology outlook. It was really well done. It looked beautiful. Um, And we ended up with, uh, the first week that it was out, not even like long-term, but the first week it was out, we put it on social media and we ended up with, uh, with 110 inbound qualified leads. So here's wow. how we actually do it. So we take <laughs> that piece of content, we put it out into the PR ecosphere, Will does that. We then take that piece of content, we put a couple of pieces of creative behind it, the little um, social piece of creative for LinkedIn, and we, we do what we call squeeze. And so we have access to the feeds of the CEO, CRO, CMO, VP of sales, whoever it is, inside the organization. 
and we like, share, and engage that piece of content on behalf of those individuals. So you don't have to ask your CEO to go in and like it or share it. Mm-hmm. It can be done automatically on their behalf through these tools. Cool. And so, yeah, so we squeeze it for them essentially. And if you can get 15 engagements in the first hour on a piece of content on LinkedIn, it will stay at the top of the LinkedIn algorithm for 24 to 48 hours. And so we squeezed it three or four times over the next week or so, and then went back and shared it later, et cetera. Um, and so organically, we delivered over 100 inbound qualified leads for that client just on that one piece of content. That's amazing. And so they, they would hit that content and then go over to the web page, the landing page and then give you the email and you're done. Yeah, exactly. And even, even better, because of the democratization-based tools, if you're using a tool called, like HubSpot, excuse me, if you're using a tool like HubSpot, and that person's email address and IP address are already in your CRM, you can see that they've hit the website, whether or not they fill up the form or not. That's so cool. So the and then buying you probably, signal, you probably even retarget them too through like Facebook or something. If you 100%. Because the minute they hit that website, then you can, you know, the retargeting cookie goes on their page and then they're seeing your, uh, they're seeing your, your, your lead magnet everywhere they go. So I think, Back to your earlier question about like B2C to B2B, B2C has been doing this for a while, right? Mm-hmm. B2C has been doing retargeting for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I think B2B is starting to figure out how to use some of the B2C tools that work for, call it Nordstrom, um, to effectively deliver buying signals to a company like American Global Logistics. And I think that's the most important thing is it's not a purchase, right? So if I'm Nordstrom, I'm looking for someone to put something in my cart so that they can then, um, they can, I'll either buy it from them and they can remind me that I put it in my cart, right? Um, so B2C folks have been doing this for a really long time. What the, what the B2B environment is just not quite catching up with is the fact that these individuals are still individuals, mm-hmm. right? So the buying signal it's still there. And if you can capture the buying signal, InsideSales.com did a study that said, if you can talk to the human that shows you a buying signal within five minutes of them showing you that buying signal, you have a 98% chance to close that deal. Wow. That's incredible. I wonder. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only step. They getting need in front of that. Things. Yeah. I mean, Aaron Ross said this in 2007, right? In his book, Predictable Revenue, it was all about, how fast can you get to the buying signal? How fast can you prove that there's a human at the other end of the line uh, and that you can pick up that buying signal where they, where they tell you they're interested? And so when we train, when we train teams um, using CRM, which we do a lot, um, we talk a lot about tracking activity to the human because you email humans and you call humans. You don't email and call companies. And so it's really interesting um, the, the thought process difference between this is my lead and the lead is the company, but the human is who I'm tracking activity again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's always, you know, humans buying from humans. That's a, that's a great point. Um, Kara, I want to switch gears a little bit towards uh, back to your personal journey a bit more. Um, I know you told me that uh, you've told me on the side before, like you, um, you started um, Smith Brown, you know, kind of as a consultant where I think most people start companies that way. Um, and you, you hit six figures there, there, now you're doing it full time and you know, you're over seven. Um, 
what did you learn? Uh, what was like the biggest lesson you learned, you know, going from a consultant to now, you know, a little under three years in business, uh, doing this full time. Pricing. Pricing. Yeah. I learned early on, uh, in the first, so the first four way of the Brown was 2012 to 2015, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I learned early on that we don't do project work. Project work is always out of scope and over budget. It is almost impossible to scope <laughs> projects appropriately. Yeah. Um, and so we only do work on annual retainer. So to work with us, you have to sort of have some skin in the game from the client. Mm-hmm. It makes us a little bit harder to work with in terms of like, we don't, we actually turn away business. Um, I shouldn't say turn away. I will recommend other groups in town or people that I know mm-hmm. um, if they're, if the client isn't interested in signing an annual retainer, but uh, it's the only thing that works for us that allows us to uh, staff appropriately, price appropriately um, and run a real business versus running like a chicken with my head cut off, just trying to get projects done all the time. So that's probably the biggest thing I learned. And, and back to your earlier question about women, one of the things that I try to instill in other women entrepreneurs is understanding how much you should be charging for what you're doing and how to ask for what you're worth. So if there's, um, you know, women or anyone who needs help with that and they're on the, they're listening to this, are there any quick tips you can provide for them on that topic? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, I think confidence is the most important thing, right? Walking into a room and saying my minimum retainer is $10,000 a month and you have to pay me for, and commit to pay me for 12 months. Most women are not, I shouldn't say most women, a lot of women that I know <laughs> have a hard time walking in and using big numbers like that. Men, no problem. They'll tell you all day long, right? Um, and this is like, in this your is, experience, why, why is that? Cause you're, you're from a very unique background, right? Like, you know, your dad loves sales. Clearly uh, <laughs> you went into marketing and now you're chief revenue officer and your dad's cold calling still. So uh, yeah. you know, that you have a very unique perspective. Why do you think that it, that difference exists? I don't know. To be totally honest, I'm like the worst person to ask that question to because okay. I am a, I'm a woman with more confidence than I, than I need. Um, I think there are a lot of women that don't have confidence and Bernie Dixon actually does an incredible job of talking about confidence, um, in her launchpad bootcamp that she has. Mm-hmm. And I'm always inspired when I hear it because I, I just want to shake my head and, and, and scream amen while she's saying it. Um, <laughs> you get like gospel revival in her class. I do. Or, like, I yeah. want to like stand at the back of my hands in the air and like, I'm that girl. Um, but <laughs> But it's really about confidence. And, and I think one of the things that was really cool about going through the Launchpad experience was, was that being a female entrepreneur, being a CEO, being a female CEO mm-hmm. requires that I have confidence. And not only that I have it, but that it's encouraged that I use it. And in corporate America, it was never encouraged in okay. my experience. Okay. It was not encouraged for me to speak out. It was not encouraged for me to be a woman of confidence in the room. It may have, it may be changing for women in corporate America. I hope it is. Um, but in my, in my corporate experience, it was not something that people were like, Oh, we can't wait for Karen to share her thoughts on this. Like <laughs> it was never, it was never, I was, I was told many, many times that I needed that filter. 
And so uh, let, me, let, me you, let me ask you a question before we move on from that yeah. topic. Um, the, the men walking in, going back to your journey about learning that value, the, the 10,000 a month retainer in six months, 12 months, whatever, whatever it is. Um, do you feel like, because women are more, well, they're usually more emotionally aware that because they may be aware of that value that, uh, it hinders them. Whereas a guy may not be, uh, he might just be like spitballing a number. And so, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, do you feel That's like almost possible. maybe that they're aware of it hinders them more than the guy in, in a general entirely situation? Possible. Okay. Yeah. There was actually a study done. I don't have it in front of me, but there was a study done that says that, uh, a man and a woman put up for the same job with essentially the same experience she will wait until she has 100% of the qualifications before she applies for the job. Mm-hmm. And he will only, uh, he'll only need 60% to apply for the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I just think it's, it's just who we are. It's just in our DNA um, that women are going to want to be perfect before they try, you know, to pray something. And I've had so many experiences with women where we try to go in on a project together or, um, I try to coach them through, you know, how to get how to get more money for whatever they're doing because they really are worth a lot more than that. Uh, I've actually helped three women start businesses that were charging me like 25 bucks an hour, and now they're charging a lot more than that, which is great. And so I think I think it just takes confidence. I think it just takes time and confidence. Um, but I think you're I think, I think you're a, right. That's a great key. I just want to make sure everybody understands that like the time and confidence basically is that plus that equals experience. So I just I want to make sure people yeah. understand that. I like that. Um all right, I know we're coming up on time, Kara. So we'll I want to get to some quick hit uh questions that should be uh you can make them as long as you want, but they're meant to be uh they're meant to be quick. Um sure. first thing is uh I know you got a pink wall in your office. Can you describe uh what that is and why it exists? <laughs> Yeah, we have a we have a, a pink feminist wall. Every new employee, guy or girl, gets to pick her or his his or her shiro and a feminist quote, and we frame them and put them on the wall. Got it. Um, well, wait. While while I got while I know that, what is yours? So my shiro is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, okay. She's incredible. And my favorite feminist quote is "Empowered women empower women." Got it. Who's that from? Uh, I have no idea. Got it. Totally honest. <laughs> um, have you seen the uh, the female artist uh, out of New Orleans, Ashley Longshore? No, but I will look her up. Well, I'll send you a link to her Instagram, but she does these really, um, I guess I would call it uh, War- Warhol-esque paintings of RBG. So, um, oh, cool. I may actually have one. This may be, the one that I have may be Ashley Longshore. It's her with her... Um, with her glove on. She's got like a lace glove on. She's such a badass. Yeah, I'll send you the Instagram link. If nothing else, she's a she's a trip to follow. Um, okay. Uh, what software do you use the most at work? HubSpot. What's your favorite mobile app? Podcast. The Apple one? Yeah. Um, let's see. If you were playing baseball and you had a batter up song, what would it be? Oh, man. Lizzo Truth Hurts. what is uh what is your favorite word oh my favorite word probably mama what is your least favorite word mama (laughs) okay (laughs) um let's see 
what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, talking about books, like not just like, hey, I like the story, but thinking of like really deeply about literature and what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. What's your favorite curse word? Uh, the F-bomb. Um, what profession other than uh, the one you have now would you like to attempt? Uh, this is funny. I am a classically trained opera singer. Shut up. I swear to God. <laughs> In another life. <laughs> I had no idea. Is that is yeah. that from your mom? Because your dad was hustling deodorant. Uh, no, actually, neither one of them are very musically inclined. You uh, just wanted to do it? No, I ended up being in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat <laughs> with okay. Donny Osmond in like junior high and uh, ended up like going into opera because I couldn't remember lyrics. And when you sing in a foreign language, no one can tell if you screwed it up. <laughs> Oh my god! All right. Well, I'll be happy to. One day you're gonna have your own Netflix special. I can tell. So I'll be happy to tell people I knew you win. Um, what profession? What profession would you hate? Uh, accounting. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh man, good job, <laughs> Kara Smith Brown. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, uh, how should they do that? Yeah, I'm Kara, K-A-R-A at smithbrown at marketing.com. Awesome. Kara, thanks so much for joining us on CRO Gumbo. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to CRO Gumbo. If you are a CRO or an executive leader at the intersection of sales, marketing, and customer service and want to innovate around your existing revenue processes, or if you want to find some places where some lost revenue may be occurring, feel free to text us for more information on how we can help you. Text CRO to 555 That's C-R-O-555-888. Now go innovate. Don't text me, tell it straight to my face Best friends that me
I'm in it I don't play tag, bitch, I've been it We don't fuck with lies, we don't do goodbyes We just keep it pushing like aye, aye, aye I'ma hit you back and I'm in it Like, aye, aye, aye